Well, good morning, church. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. So we're going to spend some time. The book of Revelation, I know some of you just got really excited because I told you we're going to start the morning in the book of Revelation. But if we're going to do that, i got to start there. If you're truly going to understand Jesus' teaching that's found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we've really got to start here. Because in Matthew, what Jesus is teaching is he's teaching on the end times. And over the last several weeks, we've tried to unpack this a little, which means we've had to spend some time in the book of Revelation. Uh, by the way, Revelation, not Revelations. That's free this morning, right? There's no S. Um, we've had to spend some time in the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We've had to uh, spend some time in the book of Nehemiah and the book of Daniel. We've sort of been all over the place. We've had to jump around a little bit in order to connect some dots so the future could come into focus a little more clearly. We also, at the start of this mini-series, gave you a chart. It looks something like this. It's on the back of the handout that's in the lobby. And we sort of walked through it all throughout the week so you could have a, a clearer picture of what your Bible says is to come. And maybe the strangest thing we've done over the last several weeks is we've talked about things called the seal judgments. We've talked about the trumpet judgments, and we've talked about the bowl judgments. It is overwhelmingly horrendous. It was catastrophic, terrible, and devastating. I'm really at a loss for adjectives to express just how distressing this time will be. Because the first three and a half years is bad. But then there's a pivot during those judgments, and those last three and a half years is what's called the Great Tribulation. So what many of you don't know is the first three and a half years, that's called the Tribulation. The last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. So there's that, right? You know, So it's going to get worse. It doesn't necessarily get better. And for this next section to make sense, I need to back up for a moment and make sure we're all on the same page about God's heart for the nation. And some of you are like, what? Like, I thought we were talking about the end times, and now you just sort of are on a rabbit trail about God's heart for the nations. No, I do like rabbit trails, but I promise this will bring clarity to where we're going. When mankind was created, Adam and Eve, God created one race. It's called the human race. And God says, these are my people who are made in my image. But when you get to Genesis chapter 10 and Noah, right, gets off that massive boat, it says his three sons spread out into their territories by their clans, each with its own language. So we started with one. Now we have three groups. So the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, they disperse. And so one goes to three. And when you get to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, God confuses the languages of even those people groups. And so now you've got different nations. You've got different languages. You've got different religions. You've got different ethnicities all coming from Genesis 11 as they scatter throughout the earth. Are you still with me? Okay, that doesn't give me much hope, right? Uh, I need you to go more than that. Okay, so good. You know, and then 
Genesis chapter 12 happens, and God calls Abraham, and God says to him, Hey, man, I'm going to call you out of all the nations, out of all the different people groups, all the different ethnicities out there, I'm going to call you, my man, to be my guy. And so God calls Abraham, which means he calls his son Isaac, and he calls his son Jacob, and they're called the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And eventually, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And that's where we get this idea of a Jewish nation. And so God's primary focus from an ethnic standpoint is Jewish in the Old Testament. So when you read your Old Testament, God's primary focus, ethnically speaking, is Jewish. And then Jesus comes. And when he starts his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he's ministering to the Jews as was his custom. That's what the Bible says. He's ministering to the Jews as was his custom. Why? Because Jesus was Jewish. Shocker, right? But sometimes we think he's Gentile. No, no. Jesus is Jewish. The Bible says that Jesus goes to the Jew first, and then something happens. He offers them the kingdom, and they reject him. And when the Jews reject Jesus, Jesus begins to speak in parables. We did a mini-series on that called The Parables I Never Knew. And so he begins to speak in parables, and he pivots from a ministry to the Jewish people to a ministry to the Gentiles. And in Jesus' day, if you're taking a census, and you're reading through it, and you're going to check a box, and it asks about your ethnicity, in Jesus' day, there are only two check boxes. Today, this many. In that day, two. There was Jewish, and there was other. That's it. Those are the only two. So you were either Jewish or you were other. And so Jesus begins to minister to the ethnic others. And what you're seeing as we travel through Matthew is the very heart of God for the nations or for the ethnicities of the earth. In fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to look at something called the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, that word nations is probably better translated ethnicities. So the heart of God is that the gospel would move not just to the Jewish people, but now as Jesus is launching the church, it would move to a Gentile group of people. And sure enough, that's what happens. So in Acts chapter 1, the gospel starts in Jerusalem, but then it moves to Judea, and it moves to Samaria, and it moves to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is given at the day of Pentecost, it's worth noting who was present. Oftentimes we think, oh, just the disciples. No, that's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says Parthians are present. It says Medes and Elamites, they're present. It says residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. This is a ginormous ethnic fruit salad. That's what's happening here. You could throw a stone in any direction and hit a different ethnicity. That's who is present at Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit comes here, and the gospel moves out now to the nations. It's not 
going to the Jews exclusively. Now, are Jewish people coming to faith during the church age? Yes, but not very many. It's predominantly Gentile. Did Gentiles come to faith in the Old Testament? Sure, some did, but not very many because the Old Testament was predominantly Jewish. Does that make sense? Thank you for the four of you who are now still tracking with me, right? Four of you caught on. Good, I need you to understand the difference between the church age and during the Old Testament. And so Paul now goes on missionary journeys, and the gospel goes to Turkey, and it goes to Macedonia, and it goes to Greece, and it goes to Italy, and it's going all over the world now, and it's taking root outside of the Jewish context. It's very important. Paul even writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So God's heart is still for the Jewish people, so it's not like they're out. Like some people think, well, three strikes and you're out. I read the Old Testament everywhere, they're just you know, swinging and missing. So God just took his ball and went home. And now he's going to give it to somebody else. You know, he doesn't want to play with them anymore at all. No, that's not what we see in the Bible. Is this church age, like in this church age, all of us are present together with both check boxes checked. And so that begs the question, if God promised to Abraham that his descendants, that they would be his people, that they would have land, seed, and blessing, that they would be blessed, that they would be cared for, that they would be loved, then what's God's plan for them? Like, like have we, the Gentile church, have we inherited their blessing? Like, are they out? Well, according to the book of Romans, no. It says that us Gentiles are grafted into the rich root of Israel. We're grafted in. It says that that they were broken off for their unbelief, but we, being a wild olive branch, have been grafted in among them because of our faith. And it goes on to say in Romans chapter 10 that we've been grafted in to make them jealous. That those who are not a nation would become a nation who would walk with God. And later on in Romans, Paul quotes Isaiah, which says the same thing. So we came to faith to make them, with the them being the Jews, jealous. And so I'm going to show you this because some of you are like, I don't believe you. So this is Romans chapter 11. This is Paul. He says, again, I ask, did they, being the Jews, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all, exclamation point. Rather, because of their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, that's us, how much greater riches will be their full inclusion bring? Had they not rejected Jesus, check this out, had they not rejected Jesus, the kingdom of God becomes a very Jewish focused kingdom and you and I are out that's what happens 
But by the grace of God, they rejected Jesus, which is weird to say. But really, by the grace of God, they rejected Jesus because he did not fit their expectation. And Jesus went to a Gentile bride, and so here we are, the ethnic others, included in the kingdom. And the reason I'm walking you through this is to make sure you realize we are not Israel. Some people today think, oh, the church today has replaced Israel. <laughs> right? <laughs> Wrong answer. We do not replace them theologically, which means then there's still continued work to be done because God promised Abraham and his descendants that they would be his special people and he would be their God. And so how is God going to focus again on his people? And the answer is the tribulation. So you thought I'd never get here, right? You thought it was the longest wind up. In the, you, know, you thought we'd never get here. We're here. So when the church is raptured, all believers are taken. And what you find early on in the book of Revelation is that 144,000 Jewish believers who are sealed with the Holy Spirit. By the way, don't get that confused with what the Jehovah Witnesses teach about 144,000. That is an unbiblical concept. You will not find that in Scripture. Here, they are 144,000 Jewish believers sealed with the Holy Spirit, and they are the evangelists. They are the Billy Grahams in the tribulation period, ministering primarily to a predominantly Jewish bride. So how do you know, Kevin? Are you just making stuff up that it's Jewish? How do you know it's predominantly Jewish? That's why 12,000 are from the 12 tribes of Israel. They're from the line of Abraham. So it's a Jewish focus for those seven years because the Gentile church is in glory. The Gentile church has been taken out. And that's very important to understand as we start this section. So the question becomes, well, what does that look like as God ministers to the Jewish people. And like, what about Satan? And that's Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, and this is what it says. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So the woman represents the Jewish people, that's the nation of Israel. And the child that's, that's going to be born here represents Jesus. You still with me? Yes. Great answer. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And I know that sounds a little like the Lord of the Rings, but stay with me. Verse 4, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman, again, that's the nation of Israel, who was about to give birth to Jesus so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So this dragon, by the way, is Satan of old. It is, he is pre-earth Satan. How do I know it's pre-earth? Remember, when he gets kicked out of heaven, he takes a third of the angels with him. And they come here. That's what's described in Isaiah 14. It's what's described in Ezekiel 28 where a third of the angelic realm was kicked out of heaven with Satan. And so now you've got Satan, 
and his demons. And you got a dragon that's after Jesus, who was just born out of the nation of Israel. Verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child, says, uh, sorry, an ant went across my page, and I have a short attention span. Um, wow. So I'm going to start verse 5 over, because I had a lot of thoughts right there, and this is on the live stream. Oh, wow. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So Jesus, after he died, ascended to the Father, and the woman, the nation of Israel, fled into the wilderness. Which makes sense. We looked at that last week. But some of you are like, why 1,000? 260 days. You want to take a guess at how many years that is? Three and a half years. It's talking about the protection of the people of God in the tribulation period. It's the first three and a half years we talked about last week. If you remember Matthew 24, verse 16, Jesus said that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That's what he's talking about here, to be protected by God. Now, jump down to verse 13. It says, When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued, or your translation, your Bible might say, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. Again, the woman is the Jewish people who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. Verse 14, The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half time, out of the serpent's reach. So biblically, time is one year. Times is two years. So half time is half a year. If you add that together, this isn't algebra. How, how much do you have? Three and a half years. So this isn't like brain surgery so far. So she'll be protected for three and a half years. That's the great tribulation. And they're going to be protected in a place from the serpent's reach. And look how bad this serpent wanted her, the nation of Israel, dead. That's verse 15. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So during this time, this is the Jewish people. And on a side note, has there ever been an ethnic group of people that has been persecuted and beat on more than the Jewish nation. Like, if you take just the Holocaust, like just the Holocaust, conservative effort, uh, estimates, 6 million. Most people think it's more like 8 and 9, high end's about 10. 10 million Jews were killed just right there. I mean, for me, every time you turn around, it seems like somebody's attacking them. 
Like, I don't know about how you watch the news or where you get your information right now, but on any channel whatsoever, when you, walk, when you watch anything about Black Lives Matter, if you watch anything about what's going on and some of the hate crimes, some of the stuff that's happening, in the midst of that always is somebody's hating on the Jews. There's always this anti-Semitic thing that's always thrown in there too. And I'm like, how does that happen? You know how that happens? Right here. This is why. And this time of tribulation will be a specific time of Jewish focus and therefore Jewish persecution. They're going to continue to be persecuted, which really is hard and difficult if you're Jewish. Now, I want you to start navigating to Matthew 24, but keep your hand in the book of Revelation because we're going back there in just a few minutes. But in Matthew 24, as you turn there, we know a Jewish focus is coming. We know that persecution is coming. And we know God, by his grace, is going to preserve these people. Now, all of that is the backdrop for Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and 25. And so look at verse 29. And here we have the return of our king. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So does this happen before the tribulation or after? It happens immediately after. So the question we have is, what ends the tribulation? The return of Jesus. And that's what it says in verse 30. Jesus says, Then will appear the signs of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all, not some, all, not most, all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see... They're going to see it with their eyes, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So who's going to see this? Everyone, all the people on the earth. There will be no need to live stream this event. Right? There's going to be no need whatsoever to put this on TikTok or, or Instagram. If you're taking video and you upload it, everyone's already seen it. You'll get no likes. You'll get none whatsoever because it's going to be big. It's filled with power and it's filled with glory and it's going to be amazing to see. And according to verse 31, it's going to be loud. It says, and he will send his angels, not an angel. He's going to send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And some of you are like, oh, Kevin just said the word elect. Here he goes. Last week he melted my face with that word and tried to unpack it for us. It's a little different here. So right here it's easier. Here John is speaking. The elect phrase is about the 144,000 Jewish believers that are sealed with the Holy Spirit and who are sharing the gospel. Those are called tribulation saints. Or here it uses the word elect that Jesus will gather to himself right here. And so I think the real question is, what's this going to look like? And so I thought, do I show a video? Do I uh, begin to describe it to you? And I went, no. Let's look and see what the Bible says. So turn to Revelation 19. This is the best picture you're going to get. So in Revelation 19, as you turn there, this section starts with what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And if you want to kind of know what that's like, it's sort of like a wedding reception. So the wedding feast is taking place, and everybody is celebrating together. Who is celebrating? The church. The rapture has happened. So we are celebrating together with him. So you've got Jesus with his bride of Christ, meaning both the church-age saints and the tribulation saints are now joining with him. And here's what it looks like, starting in verse 11. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. So, no disrespect to the triumphal entry. That's the triumphal entry. You know what I'm saying? Like, the first one's cool and all, but that's sort of tame compared to what's going on right here. This is an awesome and humbling moment. Lots of people want to know, well, whose blood is on his robes? I thought, well, at least that's the question I had. So I'm like, I need to look and figure this out. Well, some people think it's his blood from his crucifixion. A whole other group of people think it's the blood of the earth from all the devastation that's happened. Two really smart groups still debating it. If you ask me my opinion, I got no idea. I don't know that that's the point, really. I, I, I don't know that that's the point, but that's the picture we have. Verse 14 says, The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So who are the armies? Like, is, is it the angels? Nope. That's the church. That's me. I get to ride on a white horse, right? You know, I'm clean. I don't stink. I don't smell. I got nice clothes on. And so, because what's happening here is we are raptured to be with him. We spend the tribulation period in his presence. When he returns, we're going to return with him. But according to verse 15, only one person is armed, and it's not us. Right? You know, because I want the horse and I want the sword too, but I don't get the sword. I just get the, the horse and, and, and I get nice clothes. Verse 15 says, Coming out of his mouth, not mine, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, of El Shaddai. And that word for sword there, by the way, that's not dagger. That's not kitchen knife. It actually translates rumphia, which would be um, Braveheart. You know, the big old sword, two-handed sword, six foot tall, right? It's got a cleaver on the ends, devastating and deadly. This is an incredible scene. The sword he's got is the real deal sword, and it says it's coming out of his mouth. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is that a tattoo? Many think so. I'll let you decide and deal with your kids, whatever. The point is, his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty 
of the horses and of their riders and the flesh of all people, uh, free and slave, great and small. Now, you know it's going to be a beatdown if an angel is telling the birds, go ahead and circle up. You're going to get fed in just a second. <laughs> just come on, get ready. You're going to come down here and you're going to feast on all of this devastation and just sort of clean things up. So if you're a person in here who likes suspense stories, and you're like, I wonder if God is going to be able to, to pull this off. Like, I wonder if Jesus is going to win or not. He does. Like, he can, and he will. It's not even a fight. Verse 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. They're just about to get beat down. But here you're going to have the Antichrist and his religious prophet called the false prophet show up here in verse 20. It says, but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of his mouth, that one fire, of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. He called the shot. He called the shot. So if you're nervous right now as to whether God is able, let me tell you something. He is able. This is not a struggle. He doesn't need me other than I get to, he, I'm just lucky to be on a horse I'm the, uh, and nicely dressed. That's kind of where I am. This is not a struggle. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And there is none who is going to stand before him and resist him or challenge his presence. And so when he returns, it's over. You want to know what the king's return looks like, it looks like that. That's the best picture I'm ever going to be able to show you of what the king's return looks like. So now, flip back to Matthew 24 and see if we can tie this up. Because Jesus finishes this section about the end times. He, he's wrapping it up with a parable. And that's verse 32. It says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Meaning when you see these things, the end is right here, right now at the door. Verse 34, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And you read that and you go, this generation will not pass away? Uh, Kevin, we have, a, we have an error in our Bibles. No, no. The original word translate there, this lineage, this race, this people group will not pass away. It means that this people group will not fully pass away until all of these things take place. A remnant of Jewish believers will survive to and through the tribulation period. 
The world can beat on the Jews all they want. They will never, ever, ever be able to exterminate the Jewish nation because they are the people of God. And he will not, because they have to make it to and through the tribulation period, they will not pass away until the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12 of land, seed, and blessing is fulfilled. Otherwise, God's a liar. So either God's true or everyone else beating on the Jews, it's futile. You'll never win. You'll never beat them. Verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows. Some of you need to underline no one there. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and, and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Meaning, this is going to happen, and there is no religious leader. There is no pastor. There is no podcast. There is no video that's going to be able to tell you and predict the date and time. And if they tell you they can, they're liars. Because here's how I know. Because if Jesus doesn't know, I don't know. Right? Because th there's a pecking order, and I'm not second in line. Just making sense. So I will never tell you, oh, it's this date, and it's going to happen on this time. That's not how it worked. No one knows, which means, again, I looked this up in the Greek. You know what no one means? No one. So that means no one knows. That's all it means. Verse 40. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. God doesn't discriminate, he's not sexist, all going to be judged, every last one of us. And so, what's the takeaway from that hot mess? Well, for me, can I tell you this? I love Jesus. I read this and I go, I love Jesus. Jesus, because all of that is going to happen, but I'm so thankful that we will be with Jesus, rising to rule and reign with him. And he is the one. He is the only one who is fighting the battle, not me. And that's an amen moment, let me tell you. Because there's only one person that could fight this battle, and there's only one that's going to fight this battle. He is my blessed hope. Jesus, Jesus is my blessed hope. He is my Savior yesterday. He is my Savior today. And according to this, He is my Savior forevermore. Amen. Yeah, that's great stuff. And second, I think we need to remember to be ready. Because I think a lot of us are getting caught up in us. I think we get caught up in making sure my people, my stuff, my things, my world, my job, all of the mys, you're asking, you've got the wrong why. There's a different one because the end is going to come quickly and it's going to begin intensely. And what are you going to be doing? Are you ready? If the end comes this afternoon, you ready? You know, I, 
Sometimes when I go to the lightning game, I don't know if you've been, there's a dude down there with a big bullhorn. And he's pretty obnoxious, I have to say. I don't know how effective that is. And he's telling everybody about the end is coming. Regardless of whether I think about that man, it seems like one of us is ready maybe and one of us is not. One of us might be concerned about something other than the playoffs. And that's really messed up. It's got me thinking about, not that I can't enjoy things, and I'm not saying I can't ever go to a sporting event. That's not the point. I think you get it. Are we ready? And finally, I don't know how you feel about what's happening in our world today. Like if you, I don't know if you're discouraged when you watch the news. I don't know if you're discouraged when you watch videos, when you listen to podcasts, or when you read the paper. And I know we're called to be salt and light and reflect Jesus in our homes and at work and at school and in our community. And I also know theologically this world, contrary to what society tells us, we are not getting better and better and better, just circling up until we're going to bring about a self-induced utopia. I, I, I don't think that's right. That's not how it works. But if I'm gut level honest, God, would you just bring your justice? God, would you just come and just deal with all the wickedness? God, would you just come and just bring an end to all the wickedness because I'm so tired of stupid people doing stupid things and I'm tired of being one of the stupid people doing stupid things. Oh, God, come. I'm tired, and I'm frustrated of being a person like that. God, there's so much going on here that's not right, and God, would you just come? Would you come and just bring an end to the nonsense? Would you just, just come? And I'm so thankful as I read my Bible, the end will come. Jesus will come, that he will make it all right. And so the challenge is, will you bloom where he's planted you while you're planted there? Will you bloom where you've been planted while you've been planted there? Every day, every day we're called by God to be ambassadors of Christ to faithfully live out the gospel in a world that so desperately needs it. Because I don't know about you, but I see the parable of the fig tree, and it says, when you see the leaves begin to swell, the time has come. The end is near. I know we've been living with the end being near for a long time, but boy, it sure looks like the leaves are coming. And if that's the case, Thank you, Jesus, for a gospel that saves. Church, perhaps that's the return you never knew.